the National Broadcasting Company presents Joel McRae in Tales of the Texas Rangers. Breaking ball, strike three, call! The Rangers are going to the World Series! You see, around here, I'm the law. Welcome to Broadcast from the Border. I'm your host, Mina Venkataraman. This week, our producer, Jess Eng, interviews John Moran Gonzalez, the J. Frank Doby Regents Professor of American and English Literature at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is also the director of the Center for Mexican American Studies. Professor Gonzalez is well known for his work on early 20th century history at the U.S.-Mexico border and specifically the 1915-1920 Borderlands War, which was an undeclared war resulting in some of the worst state-sanctioned racial violence in American history. Unfortunately, this period is not well known among students of history, and if they do learn about it in school, many details are omitted. Today, he shared key background details and the context for this war. What I call the Borderlands War and Uh, what is now known as La Matanza, or or the Great Killing or Massacre, uh, really uh, stemmed from a series of major uh, changes, political, social, and economic changes that occurred between 1904 and 1915 in the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas, uh, which is at the very southern uh, tip of Texas. And uh, what had happened was that uh, prior to 1904, uh, yes, it was part of the U.S. since 1848 at the end of the U.S.-Mexican War with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, but essentially the Mexican way of life remained there uh, for another half century, pretty much undisturbed in many respects. So in 1904, uh, there's a major change when uh, a railroad link is built from Corpus Christi and San Antonio down to this part of Texas, effectively plugging in the lower Rio Grande Valley into the national U.S. national economy. And the changes that stemmed from the uh, speculator opportunity just completely overturned the way of life that had been there for quite a long time. Uh, the transition from uh, Tejano-owned, largely subsistence cattle ranching economy to a Anglo-controlled corporate agribusiness or agricultural economy. And so essentially land is dirt cheap because there's no water. You know, land without water is, is, is not very useful for the most part. And so the, the Mexican and Spanish uh, settlers settler colonists of the region had a ranching economy, but large-scale irrigation uh, pumps and infrastructure uh, allowed for irrigation for water to be brought where it hadn't been before, and hence made this cheap dry land much more valuable because it was available for agricultural crops.
So essentially there's very, very rapid turnover of land and also political power. Um, as the uh, railroad companies advertise this part of South Texas with its cheap land and cheap Mexican labor as a kind of California and Florida rolled into one. Numerous thousands, tens of thousands of Midwesterners essentially come flooded into this area that had never seen such an influx of, of white people, essentially. And they come with their progressive era Jim Crow beliefs. And hence, uh, you know, what they considered to be the, the corrupt machine politics of, of the area. Uh, soon, uh, you know, they were determined to clean it up and uh, the first step was effectively disenfranchising the uh, Mexican-American vote. Um, and they did this through whites-only primaries. Uh, and they're quite paranoid because uh, white people in this part of Texas are substantially outnumbered by Mexican descent people, along with literacy tests and other poll taxes, all the other kind of uh, tactics used to disenfranchise uh, mainly African-American voters in the South. They were used uh, in this region as well. In short order, what you have is the large-scale economic, political, and social displacement of the folks, the Tejanos, who had uh, run the place uh, before. This grew into some major resentments as racial segregation in public accommodations is, is uh, instituted. By 1915, this breaks out into a guerrilla war. And I mean that in a very, very literal sense, with small bands of, say, uh, two to three dozen ranchers with hunting rifles are going around attacking farms and railroads and anything that is linked to their displacement. There, there is an actual shooting war. It's an uprising with the goal to overthrow the changes of the previous decade. Of course, this can't last. It, it only lasts a couple of months in the summer of 1915, but it is enough to provoke a, a vicious collective punishment by the law, law enforcement particularly the Texas Rangers, but aided and abetted often by uh, county-level uh, law enforcement and sometimes vigilantes. So there's a just widespread collective punishment of the Mexican descent population, and our best estimates is that at least a thousand Mexican descent people are, are murdered by the state and county authorities. And, uh, you know, there were bodies found, you know, in the years afterwards with execution-style bullet holes in the back of their heads. And at this point in history, as Professor Gonzalez describes, Border Patrol as we know it today did not formally exist. At this period, the border is completely open. That is, you know, people can cross freely just about anywhere along the along the border and they did and the only thing that uh, authorities on either the Mexican or the US side were interested in were customs duties 
that is on uh, on traffic and goods. So yes, you you know you might have to pay a toll to cross a bridge, but you know that was pretty trivial. There was no border controls for people per se. Increasing racial tension resulted in one of the bloodiest accounts in American history. And yet, the Mexican-American families who witnessed and experienced this violence firsthand responded in dramatically different ways. There were basically two types of reactions by families whose family members were, were victims of this violence. One was to attempt to forget it, right? That the it was very painful to have a family member murdered in this way. And often these families moved out of Texas. You know, they moved uh, all, all over. And in fact, we had one family who had gone to Michigan. They all said, like, you know, you know, never go to Texas because you'll get killed there, even though they didn't get related to specific circumstances of what happened. On the other hand, uh, and this is in our work with descendants of murdered victims, we, we find that back when the events happened and also uh, up to the current day, we're very much involved in seeking some kind of justice for this wrongdoing. These families immediately started archives of documents, of eyewitness testimony, of all kinds of you know newspaper accounts because they some they often filed for um, compensation in various uh, venues legal venues and they had long-standing court cases around these events and they kept all this stuff you know in spare bedrooms and in garages they've kept this material for a hundred years and so uh, they know these stories very well. They're, it's a story not simply of, oh, well, some bad things happened to these folks a long time ago, uh, but rather how uh, their families uh, and loved ones have continued to fight for justice even after a hundred years. And they still, still feel, I think quite correctly, that that day of reckoning has not been completed. Along with four historians, Professor Gonzalez launched the educational nonprofit Refusing to Forget in 2013. Their goal is simple, retell the story of the borderlands and reclaim it as a part of Texas history. After joining forces, the team sought to create educational experiences around the Texas Rangers and their state-sanctioned violence for a public audience. One of the first places they started looking was the Bullock Texas State History Museum. We immediately thought, but we're quite conflicted about going to the Bullock Texas State History Museum because its reputation was as a purveyor of the, the what I call the Chamber of Commerce version of Texas history. Uh, very non-critical, uh, overly celebratory. But we also decided that the Bullock was too important not to approach. You know, I mean, it is the premier space for public history exhibits in Texas. Uh, when we approached the uh, Bullock leadership, we were actually surprised that they were very receptive to this idea. Uh, really, it was about 
helping them move into what they also saw was the need for more in-depth, critical Texas history exhibits. So we were officially the uh, expert consultants uh, on the exhibit. The museum staff uh, created the, uh, the exhibit, but we had a great deal of input and uh, into, into the narration, into the curation of, of the uh, exhibit. And it opened in January, 2016. It, it ran only for about three, three or four months, uh, but we had over 40,000 people view it. To us is an amazing number, uh, including a lot of K through 12 students taking those Texas history classes. I'll, I'll add one of the kind of changes in curation we, we, we made for the exhibit was to ensure that the, all the explanatory texts were available in Spanish as well as English, because language, of course, indicates who you believe your public to be. And we very much wanted a Spanish-speaking public <laughs> to be involved. Even today, the Texas Rangers are the stars of the latest films, westerns, and pop culture projects. The Texas Rangers are featured favorably in many old and new westerns, including Netflix's 2019 film The Highwaymen. They are also a popular baseball team and were sensationalized in a 20th century radio show called Tales of the Texas Rangers. You know, this, this work of culture and of memorialization, of glorification, is uh, really something we've seen in, in the current debates over Confederate monuments, say, uh, specifically. Um, you know, how those are meant to, you know, those are not sim simply commemorations of great men of the past, but of rather the principles that they stand for, stood for both then and now. The essentially placing that uh, Confederate monument in the middle of the town square uh, was the late 19th century white South's way of asserting a principle, uh, a social principle of white supremacy and projecting it into public spaces. The 20th century way is through mass media. And that's how the Rangers got their glory days, you know, the glorification because it really wasn't until the 1930s. Film, radio, uh, and then later television, that the Rangers get glorified and memorialized in the way that, you know, you, you laid out, right? Though, you know, the kind of Walker, Texas Ranger thing. Uh, of course, there were plenty of earlier versions of that uh, and up, up into the, you know, a film made last year or released last year. So, uh, so there's been this ongoing, constant kind of glorification, memorialization of the Texas Rangers over the course of a century. The Texas Rangers were very much involved in uh, the suppression of civil rights efforts uh, by uh, African Americans you know, such as uh, running the president of the NAACP out of town in the early, uh, like not about 1920, uh, and then, uh, you know, in the late 50s, about uh, 
the violent policing of black and brown bodies for the purposes of establishing white supremacy. You know, they're a very different agency now. Uh, they're primarily investigative. Uh, but nonetheless, one can't ignore this long and, and pretty bloody history. In his reflections on the Bullock exhibit, Professor Gonzalez notes that the history of the Rio Grande Valley was practically erased from his seventh grade history book. In it, he also talks about the importance of Texas history to its K-12 curriculum and how it's failed to include the stories and voices from Texas's most important events. The other place that the Rangers have been memorialized has been in the uh, public school curriculum in Texas, at least. I, I uh, don't believe I'm mistaken about this, but Texas is actually the only state that devotes two years of primary, you know, K-12 education to state history. So, for instance, uh, there are Texas history units uh, or, or uh, classes at both the fourth grade level and at the seventh grade level. And so back when I was in school, uh, elementary school, we didn't have a fourth grade Texas history, or I sure don't remember it at least. Uh, I think that was a more recent implementation. But there are two whole years devoted to Texas history. And unfortunately, the curriculum has not been uh, updated enough. It's been updated, there have been some, you know, attempts at pluralism of, of, of a kind of rather empty type. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This event spurred present-day protest movements and ongoing conversations about police brutality. In Alex Vitale's book, The End of Policing, he talks about the problematic history of American law enforcement and specifically comments on the systemic violence from the Texas Rangers. Conversations about police reform today draw connections from the history of the early 20th century. There are real limits to the discourse of reform. And that is because back in 1919, as a result of this state investigation that, you know, I mean, the report, the transcripts like 1500 pages long. The, the Ranger Force was in fact uh, reformed. You know, it was professionalized. They had to be law, law officers in good standing and post, uh, post bonds and so on and so forth. And then the number, the size of the Ranger Force was reduced as well. You know, this, this was the reform of the day. Uh, this didn't stop the, the kind of purpose of being. In other words, that the kind of size and composition and relative professionalization was changed, but its purpose was not. And so, uh, you know, they continued, you know, for the next, uh, let's see, the, from 1920 at least through about 1980 or so. Uh, you know, they continued to be involved in the intimidation and uh, you know, and violence against uh, people of color, you know, union busting Chicano farm workers, say, during the, during the 60s. You know, that was the Texas Rangers. Basically, you know, insofar as, you know, you can say like add body cameras or 
do sensitivity training or kind of implicit bias training or something like that. But until there's a, there's a, a collective understanding, and I, and I include the police force within this, of what historically their role has been. Unfortunately, I think these kind of uh, what I might otherwise say are, are procedural or technological fixes are not going to take hold. In a time like COVID, Ranger documents, museums, archives, and other primary sources are no longer easily accessible. In line with his work with Refusing to Forget, John offers some of his recommendations and thoughts on learning this history during such an uncertain period. Educational institutions are attempting, scrambling to try to answer that very sort of question. I think one way is to uh, to continue to develop uh, ethnic, ethnic studies as alternatives to the dominant way that uh, U.S. history and culture is taught. Texas, the, the State Board of Education for K through 12, you know, uh, in the past couple of years adopted both Mexican-American studies and African-American studies. So uh, creating resources for those uh, approved tracks is, is one way, curriculum. The, another way is uh, to, um, you know, to continue to write um, um, our scholarship. In fact, we have a volume coming out in spring of 2021 called Reverberations of Racial Violence, which is essentially an anthology of scholarly essays about, about this period uh, and this violence. And uh, as well as publishing in op-ed, you know, say op-eds, I mean, this stuff is so deeply ingrained that there needs to be a very conscious and long-term effort to root out white supremacy, whatever form, you know, it took. Refusing to forget has had many successes, and yet there always remains work to be done. Professor Gonzalez discussed his dream projects, what it would look like, and how it would take shape. I mean, what if, say, we had, uh, were able to get an apology resolution from the, from the state, uh, from the state legislature, from the state governor, about regarding these events? You know, it would be symbolic, but it would be a hugely important symbolic step towards some semblance of, of truth and, and re- reconciliation, right? There, there is, those two have to go hand in hand. We're looking at 2023 as a kind of an interesting date because, of course, that's going to be the bicentennial, the founding of the Texas Rangers. And, you know, I, a moment where uh, we definitely want to forestall any further glorification, uncritical glorification. We want to make sure that their role in the establishment of white supremacy in Texas is known. These issues continue to be relevant, as we've seen uh, in the past few days and weeks. This episode was produced and edited by Jess Ang with research assistant from Julia Weisa. Thank you to Emily Hong, The Blue Dot Sessions, and Lobo Loco for their original music.
If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and follow us on Spotify or iTunes for more content. And find us on storiesfromtheborder.org or follow us at Border Stories AZ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.